Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It just takes one thing to happen and everything changes. And that's what's amazing about music, I think, because you just don't know like what's going to be a hit. You could be one minute earning... 10 grand a year in the next half a million you know yeah. you have no idea what could happen this is music made me do it a podcast from loud and quiet magazine i'm stuart stubbs and each week i'll be speaking to people who felt compelled to start their own successful companies within the music industry of all the jobs within the music industry it's perhaps the managers who have the closest relationships to the artists themselves Everyone else likes to think it's them, but really, if anyone's going to be considered the extra member of the band, it's the manager. It's their job to get the deals done, to be there through the records that bomb as well as the ones that become mega hits, to say no to people so that the artists themselves don't have to, and crucially, to make good business decisions for everyone involved. Managers are also kind of like professional parents, which means that they're often either underappreciated or blamed for things whenever they do go wrong. Carol Crabtree knows about all of this. She's been working as a music manager for the last 28 years and in 1993 formed her own management company. Today, Solar Management employs a team of 10 people and represents not just musicians like Fortet, Floating Points, Jimmy Somerville and Zero Seven, but some of the biggest record producers in the world. Also remixers, composers and songwriters who've written with everyone from Brian Eno to Kylie Minogue. But how do you even start to become a music manager or even understand what it is that they do? For Carol, the desire to work in the music industry really began when, as a student at university in Bristol, she put on her first show for a band. But not before she managed to sneak into the Live Aid concert to see one of the first bands that she truly loved. Bohemian Rhapsody was my first single that I actually bought. Okay. Um, I just and I really loved Cream. I just thought their songs were just amazing. I was really lucky to actually go to the Live Eight concert. Wow! Yeah, I was watching it on TV, and I was, the guy I was going out at the time just said, "Let's go! Let's just go to London! Let's just go!" And we were like, "What? What?" You know, so we just jumped in his car. I must have been seventeen or something at the time, and we just got there and we managed to get tickets from a town for face value, which because it'd already been on for a couple of hours. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was my first amazing experience of seeing a live show. I mean, that was... Did you see great. Queen? Did you get to see Queen? Yeah, yeah, I got to see Queen. Was, yeah, because he was at the end. And yeah. We, and we managed to also... We were in standing in the crowd, and it was really hot, and it was a bit overwhelming. So we kind of had to get out of there. I felt like I was going to faint. But there was a bit of a kerfuffle going on in the sort of... around the side area of Wembley, and we managed to sneak up these stairs while everyone was rushing over, the security were rushing over to sort something out. 
and we end up sitting next to uh, Pete Townsend from The Who <laughs> and watching the rest of the show from like the prime position, which was probably the artist area. So yeah. that was amazing. This is like something so, from uh, a movie. Uh, <laughs> so that was like my, yeah, probably. I mean, we always went to, I grew up in Cambridge, so there was lots of live music. And there was always people playing in pubs and right. lots of my friends played in bands and DJed. And so I grew up with a lot of music around, but... Yeah, that was my first sort of amazing concert experience. Sure. Did you think you wanted to work in music? I hadn't really thought about it. I just, I basically, you know, I ended up doing business studies because I kind of didn't really know what A-levels to do. I was at that point where I was like, I know if I take A-level, I'll just probably muck about and fail. So I went on to Bristol Poly to do business studies there. And whilst I was there, my sister's boyfriend was in a band and um, I managed to get them a gig at the uni. Um, and my friends and I all went round in my car in the middle of the night, like with a bucket of wallpaper paste, put all these posters up. And anyway, it turned out to be like a really amazing success, mm. a sort of sold out show. They were called The Bible. Okay. And it was Boo Hewardine's band. And they were all from Cambridge, so I sort of knew them all right. from, you know. How did you manage to get the gig for them? Um, I think I just knew the students' union rap, rep at, uh, at, the, at the uni and just, uh, well, it was actually a poly, it was Bristol Poly. Mm. Um, I think it's called West of England University now. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't difficult to get, the, to get the gig. It was just more, actually, the responsibility was suddenly, like, people need to actually show up to this gig now because I've got, you know, my big sister and all her, you know, boyfriend and friends coming and I really need to make sure it's a successful night. So that was my first experience of slapping up fly, you know, posters sure. yeah, yeah. In, the mid, in the dead of night. It was quite exciting. So I guess at that point, um, you, were kind of, you were kind of acting more as a promoter, I guess, at that point. Exactly. In, 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 yeah. and did you, so after that, did you I did get a few a taste bits and bobs, but yeah, I did a bit, and that was kind of towards the end when I was there. So when I left, I kind of got a bit lost in terms of I don't really know what I want to do. I kept going for these interviews in, like, marketing companies of insurance brokers and thinking, this is, like, so not me, I don't, you know. Mm. And uh, then, luckily, Dave, my sister's boyfriend, said, oh, you know, our manager needs some help in the office in London. Why don't you get together with him? And so we met up in Harlow, I think, um, and that's Marcus Russell right. from Ignition okay. Management. And he took me on, and that's how I started. And within two weeks, I was at Top of the Pops with Electronic, and it was amazing I literally thought I'd died and gone to heaven what? my parents were like what are you doing you know you're getting paid like six grand a year that's less than your student grant and I was like I don't care I love <laughs> it I just love it so and, what age uh, were you then at that point so I must have been 22 something like that yeah okay it's Ignition who ended up um, managing Oasis, managing Oasis. Yeah. yeah so this was before Oasis sure so, so who was on that book Marcus so. had um, well early on he had this band called Latin Quarter I think was one of his first bands and then we had Vava which is Matt Johnson's band Vava yeah. that Johnny Marr was in sure and we also had Johnny Marr and Electronic um, and it was just it was really it was so amazing I think Vava were doing like five nights at the Albert Hall Electronic were at playing on top of the pops, um, doing stuff with the Pet Shop Boys, and yeah. I got to go to LA. They did this amazing show at Dodger Stadium with Depeche Mode. Um, yeah, it was just incredible. Just So you're straight in, really? I was just literally straight in. And yeah, it was just absolutely amazing. In those days, you know, there was a lot of money. There was a lot of wild nights out. Yeah. A huge amount of drug taking was going on. Sure. Um, just watching all of that going on was just quite incredible. Just... No. 
Yeah. Bernard somewhere at the top of the pops, you know, doing about nine lines of coke and a bottle of Perno before he went to mine the track on top of the pops. That was quite an eye opener, I think, at that at that time. Growing up, were you quite naive to that, or were you, you knew you knew what you were getting into when you? I didn't really know. I don't think I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really know, but um, you know, it was it was all. I just soaked it all up and. Yeah. I mean, I had been in the early '90s. A lot of my friends were DJs, and I kind of like went out loads to clubs and yeah. was a part of the whole rave scene. And used to go down to the Zap Club in Brighton and you know, oh. come back the next morning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not I wasn't too young and innocent, but um, yeah. but yeah, it was certainly was quite an eye opener of just how everything worked in the music industry. And, sure. So what uh, year? What year is the What year is this? Is about '89. So '89. To ninety one, I worked at Ignition. Sure. And that was really amazing. And like Marcus is the most incredible guy to work for. Mm. Just such a lovely person and really generous. And I learned so much. He was always like, "We're going to be the best. We're going to be the best." And was it a new um, company at that point? Or uh, been no, he'd been while? doing it a little while. Um, but it was, I guess, you know, electronic. And we were also sorting out all the Smiths catalog. That was really interesting. So it was we were doing. Marcus was helping the deal go from Rough Trade to Warner's. Right. And one of my jobs was actually ringing up Morrissey to help organise what the artwork was going to look like. Um, and that was quite an experience. I never actually got to meet him, but um, I used to call him up every week and say, right, now we're doing this album, you know. And But one day I just rang him up and he answered the phone with a French accent. And I was like, yeah, hi, it's me, it's Carol. And he was like, there is no one here with that name. And I, and he just slammed the phone down and that was it. We never spoke to him again. Even Marcus couldn't get through to him. Wow. So after that, we had to kind of make it up as we went along. That's quite a good uh, buy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you could tell it was definitely him, I Oh, sure. yeah, yeah, I knew it was him. <laughs> it was really funny, but he just was such a character. Just, uh, yeah. Until he that point. He decided he was bored of doing the, uh, the it, sleeves. It and and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was his way to say on that. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Yeah. Maybe that's how he breaks up with everybody. He just Maybe, becomes yeah. a French. Just turns into someone else <laughs> and tells them that he doesn't know who they are. I'm guessing when you started, we, was it a big company? A no, no, it was just Marcus and I. Wow. Yeah. So you were, we were in a kind of like hallway. We we're on a landing between uh, a sort of this tiny little muse house just off the Maribyrn Road. And above us was um, this guy that used to manage photographers. Um, and he would always you know, crack open a bottle of wine about five o'clock. We had like Hazel O'Connor coming in and all sorts of amazing people. Uh, yeah, we were in a tiny little kind of landing. Yeah. Eventually, I mean, we did some amazing stuff, you know, we toured all over the place and got into all kinds of scrapes in various countries with, with electronic and um, went to the Hacienda loads. We were working with Factory Records, so that was really interesting and all kinds of... Uh, shenanigans going yeah. on up there and I suppose um, because it was just the two of you you got to have loads of extra responsibility that maybe if you'd gone to a bigger company yeah there was lots of people maybe you wouldn't have got the call to go no, on the tours no, or exactly or well we went things. we kind of had to do everything a bit later on Alec McKinley joined and he is still there now I believe so um yeah I mean it was anything from organizing a van for you know, I remember we were at Glastonbury, or I went to Glastonbury with a whole load of friends, and we were about to find out if where the chart position was on Sunday, whether we were going to get top of the pops, and if we did, I had to like organise a million different vans and technicians and people coming from Manchester, and 
and uh, I hadn't slept. I think we went on Thursday morning, so it was like a mad Glastonbury where you just don't really go to bed at all. And then I sort of listened to the radio, realised that they'd got the chart position. I was like, oh, God, I'm going to like drive through the night on Sunday to get, I kind of, I think we got stuck in all the traffic trying to get out of Glastonbury. I pretty much sort of drove straight to the office right. uh, at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and just sort of somehow managed to like organise everything. And then I just remember I said to Marcus, oh, I'm just going to the post office. And I went down in the bait. we had like a basement where we kept all our t-shirts and stuff like that. And I just like got amongst all the boxes of t-shirts and just like passed out for about four hours. So, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was interesting, but it was an amazing top pops up, so a really good one, and uh, it was worth soldiering through, yeah, to, yeah. to get back to organise it all, but... I mean, it sounds incredible, it sounds like great fun. Was there ever a point where you thought, maybe this isn't for me? No, or... not at all, I absolutely loved it, and yeah. I loved, you know, the way that Marcus sort of taught me to, you know, how to go about things, it's really inspiring, mm. um, but sadly, after three, two and a half, three years, um, all the acts that we had just kind of stopped doing stuff. So Electronic decided to go and do something else. Oh, yeah. uh, Matt Johnson sort of packed down the burr and, and went off. I can't remember what he ended up doing, but he just took a, took a break. And suddenly we found ourselves without any anything to manage, uh, right. anyone to manage. So we were, Marcus and I were out sort of going to loads of shows and going to gigs and trying to get leads. And But eventually we, sort of, we hadn't really got anything much to do, so I, I got made redundant. Right. Um, and about six months later, he found Oasis. I think Johnny Marr's younger brother introduced him um, right. to, to uh, the Gallagher's. Um, but by then, I was working at another management company called Elysian Management. Okay. Um, and that was run by a woman called Vanda Rawlins, who was a bit of a character. Okay. Again, a lot of drugs around, so she would... Uh, so this is probably, this yeah, is like this 93? Yeah, this is about 92, 92, 92 yeah, okay. 92. Um, and we had the producer, Stephen Haig, who was amazing, was doing New Order, Pet Shop Boys, um, Blur, James, just some incredible records that he was producing. Um, we also had Jimmy Somerville, um, who was doing loads of touring and making records with London Records. And a band called Banderas, who are two girls, Sally right. and Caroline, and then quite a few other sort of producers and mixers. So it was a really busy roster. Was it a bigger company? It was a massive office in Primrose Hill, but there was like no one there. <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird. There was like me, there was Vanda who had this sort of huge office at the end. Right. There was me, the bookkeeping girl, and then the receptionist who was like so far down the other end of the office that I had to phone her to actually have a conversation with her. And it was so weird. It was, there was loads going on, but like Vanda was just never there. Okay. And I was kind of just thrown right in the deep end. So you were kind of running it. Yeah, I had no idea. I was just like, what is going on here? It's so weird. And I used to, like, Vanda would just phone up and say, oh, I fell down the loft ladder. I'm going to be in about two weeks. And I was like, well, can you send me some checks? Like, I've got to pay everybody, you know. There's money coming in and everyone's asking to get paid. And it was the weirdest thing. Like, she'd swan in halfway through the afternoon, throw a massive lump of hash on my desk and go, skin up then. And I'd be like, oh. So yeah, so that was interesting, and I was away a lot with Jimmy actually because he was doing like promo tours in Germany, and so I got really sort of to know him really well. Right. 
And in fact, I got to know all the clients pretty well. Cause what did the artists think of, of her? The, uh, well, her? she was just this such a character. She had a real sort of gift of the gab, and she could persuade anyone to do anything. Right. Um, but I, I kind of realised that everything was a bit on the surface. Like, once you scratch down, it's like, what is actually going on? Is any, you know, is anything yeah. actually getting done? Or Anyway, I got started getting a little bit suspicious of some weird business going on, and... The account, all different accountants kept phoning up and asking for Vanda and she just was nowhere to be found and I was mm. like in the end I was like look just tell me what's the problem and I'll go and see if I can sort it out um, so this one accountant company said well there's £90,000 like supposed to be in Jimmy's account from the it's a, it's a tax rebate from the inland revenue but we can't find it in the account and we don't know what's going on we need to file the accounts and so in the end I said to Jimmy look why don't you go and talk to your accounts I, I really think there's some weird stuff going down here and so anyway we sort of uncovered that Amanda had just basically been taking people well I don't I think she got herself into a bit of a hole and so she was just dipping into other people's accounts I mean she signed the checks for all our clients like they didn't even have access to their own bank accounts right. she ran everything and I think I don't know. I mean, reading between lines, I think she'd got herself into a bit of shtug. And so yeah. she was like, oh, I'll probably just borrow that money out of here, out of there. Um, but it wasn't looking very rosy for anyone. So um, I basically told everyone, look, go and see your accountants. You know, I really think something weird's happening here. Right. So anyway, very quickly, in the space of maybe two or three days, we discovered that she hadn't paid anyone's tax or VAT returns hadn't been done. Wow. Everyone was in a nasty position and she was running, she was driving from house to house of all the clients <laughs> trying to like talk to everyone. She realised that was, you know, I kind of had to say, look, I'm sorry, but I you know the accounts kept ringing up and I had to go, like, well, I'm going to lose my job anyway, so I may as well just be honest with everyone. And so it was quite, it was a bit like a soap opera. She was driving from Jimmy's house and then he'd be ringing up going, She's outside. I'm yeah. I'm hiding behind the curtains. I don't want to let her in. And then, then he'd be like, I think she's going to Sally's house. And then he'd ring up Sally. Um, she was in the communards with him, so they were really good friends. And um, and she'd be like, I'm hiding behind the sofa. She's outside the house. I'm not going to let her in. And it was it was it was the weirdest time. You you could have made a really interesting soap opera out of it. But anyway, so within a few days. The whole thing went tits up. The company went into liquidation, and they were like coming in to like seize all the assets. Wow. Um, everyone, it was quite horrible actually, because everyone realised that they were actually in a lot of financial trouble. Mm. So all the clients at the time, just I said, look, they're come, you know, they're coming in. They're going to like take everything, and they were like, well, you've been pretty much doing it. Why don't you just set up a new company and you can manage us? And I was like, uh. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and wow. so in the middle of the night, we got into the office and we got all the filing cabinets out. So we got all the contracts and the paperwork, and we got everything out that we could. And I rang up um, at the time. Jimmy Somerville was making a record with with Stephen Hay producing actually at Rack Studios. Right. So I rang up uh, Trish, or I went and saw Mickey Most, and I said, "Have you got a little corner like somewhere that we could just move in?" You know. It would just be me and the receptionists and a lot of filing cabinets, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so we did in the in the in the dead of night. We kind of got as much stuff out as we could, and wow. uh, and we moved into Rag, yeah. And that was in nineteen ninety three, 
and that's when I set up solar. Wow. So yeah, in a little corner of Rack, and I was allowed to be there for six months while I sorted something out. Right. And I ended up being there for nine years. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, and that that was an amazing move actually. I mean, obviously for me it was like, what what have I done? What am I doing? I have no idea. I had all these contracts that Stephen Haig was in the middle of producing like nine different albums, and. Uh, so I had to sit down with the lawyer, Mark Ray, who's still my lawyer now, actually, mm. and say to him, right, can you explain what a producer contract is in some very simple terms? Yeah. So what happened to Vanda? Well, she did a runner. Right. Um, her house was in negative equity. She was last seen selling flowers on the Fulham Road or something. Right. Okay. But, um, yeah, she managed to sort of extricate herself from the whole scenario yeah um and we have never ever heard from her again wow there's yeah. no contact nothing no, we couldn't find her we were trying to sort of track to see if she uh cause she had this house in fulham mm. and jimmy had some friends who lived down the same road so he they he had like the spies out to see if and she did eventually sell her house and we did i think he did because he had lent her quite a lot of personal money so he managed to get something back out of right, her but right, right. the saddest thing was we uncovered a lot of mess Mm. And so he'd done like a huge world tour um, and I tracked down, this is before I worked there, I tracked down the tour manager and he said, oh yeah, we'd made a profit of blah, blah, blah. But the account showed something different because none of the money had gone into the account. Right. So the receptionist told me that she, the bookkeeper used to ask her to pack up shoe boxes of cash and send them to Ireland. Uh. And I was like, you just did that? And like, she was like, yeah, I just got told to do it. <coughs> So I think potentially the bookkeeper may well have been in on the game, but anyway, yeah. and Vanda didn't have her eye on it. But anyway, the sad thing was Jimmy owed the inland revenue £750,000 in unpaid tax. And suddenly you're his and manager. And suddenly I'm the manager. We had these massive offices and Stephen Haig was one of the directors of Elysian. So he was lumbered with all the mess with like photocopiers that had 10-year lease plans on them and right. you know all sorts of mess it took us ages just trying and sadly um the, band, the girls from banderas had to declare themselves bankrupt because they'd got a big deal with london records and she'd never paid right the tax on that wow. she hadn't paid the vat she'd claimed the vat but she'd never paid it so yeah it was really mm. difficult times um but also for me amazing yeah because <laughs> here i was at 25 26 whatever suddenly with a you know i think we had about 15 clients a on the full roster, roster. A full roster really busy so you're people. so it's you're 25 26 it's the middle of the night and you're yeah. <laughs> kind of bundling filing cabinets into a car or a van was that really exciting or was it really frightening it was actually exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I think because also I had everyone around me and Stephen and Jimmy, like they helped me sort of set the company up and everything. And they were like, don't worry, you know, we'll make sure you get some money each month and stuff like that. And it, they were really supportive. And, and yeah, what it was, it was exciting actually. It was just like a whole new chapter for, for everyone really. It was from a corner of Rack Studios where Carol began to build her roster on top of the one that she had inherited overnight. Now, Rack Studios is a legendary recording studio based in an old school in North London. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it turned out to be the perfect place to meet new clients. As fate would have it, also working at the studio were Henry Binns and Sam Hardacre, who had become 07, and a fledgling producer called Nigel Godridge, who was about to produce his first album, Radiohead's OK Computer. 
Zero Seven would go on to sell over a million copies of their debut album, Simple Things, while Nigel Godrich has since produced Beck, Paul McCartney, R.E.M., U2, and every Radiohead album since that first one he recorded in 1996. So Nigel came into my office with this OK Computer contract and was like, oh, can you have a look at this for me? I've got no idea. And I was like, yeah, sure, of course. And that's how I sort of started managing Nigel. Did you have an idea at that point? Did you, oh, yeah, you, yeah. You, I'd you, already done 100 Stephen Haig producer contracts at that point, so I knew, I, I knew what I was doing by then. This was probably four or five years after I was at RAG that sure. I started managing Nigel. OK. And then very quickly after that, Sam and Henry from Zero Seven were also um, engineers. Right. He got them, they'd all got each other the job, I think. Nigel got the first job, then he got Henry in because they went to school together, and then Henry got Sam the job, and so they'd all sort of. And they had a little studio together actually called Shebang Studios, right. um, which is just in West Hampstead. Yeah, they've still got that still around, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah Swiss Cottage area, yeah. And I think Nigel gave Sam and Henry some sort of parts to one of the Radiohead tracks, um, Climbing Up the Walls, and they did this remix just in the in Shebang Studios, and uh, Rayhead loved it. And so they very quickly, I think, asked me if I would sort of help, that, help out with the paperwork for that. And I think we had like two hours to come up with a name. And I was like, well, what are we going to call it? What do you, what, who are you? What do you want to be called? And yeah, they had to, I think we had like two hours, because I had EMI calling me going, come on, we, want, we need to get the label copy done. Like, what, who are these guys? What's it called? And uh, I think they've been backpacking around uh, Honduras and... Uh, They'd been in this stuck in this one beach bar, I think it was called Zero Sete or something. Or it right. had they had one well, apparently had had some like cassette tapes of this amazing music, and they just had them on repeat, and that's what inspired them to call themselves Zero Seven. Right. This uh, yeah from their backpacking trip, but yeah, so they very quickly went on to do loads of amazing mixes, and then everyone was saying to me, well, when are they going to do their own material? Mm. So I was like, come on guys, like, you know, give us, why don't you make some of your own music? And they did, and it was amazing. But then we had to, we were looking for singers to work with them. That was, yeah, way back when I think they'd been working with this girl, Sophie Barker, um, writing some music with her. And then they found Sia, uh, which was really incredible. I think their, her manager at the time played football with, with them. Right. And uh, yeah, so they, they kind of got her on board. And then we did a publishing deal with Universal. Um, there's an amazing woman there called Ruth Rothwell, who was absolutely brilliant for me, actually. She really sort of helped me out in terms of, you know, what to do next. And we, we made an EP and we sort of did all these 12 inches and vinyl and we took it round all the record stores. I sort of went to like Black Market and places like that and sold in the record and, mm. and it all went mad. It was, it was incredible. It really took off, yeah. didn't it? It really did. I was getting approached by lots of different people, one of which was Max Lusada, who wanted to sign the band. But at the time, he he just had his little kind of hip-hop label, Raucous Records. And, right. And I was like, well, you need to get some money, like, go and join up with someone, or, you know, you've got to come back with something. I can't just, you know, sign them to you with no advance or whatever. Mm. And so he went and did a deal with uh, Corda Marshall, uh, Marshall Records, and set up Ultimate Dilemma. Right. Um, and then he came back and he was like, right, I've got 30 grand. I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so uh, we did it. And then I had the job of trying to persuade Sam and Henry that they could perform live. You know, they're just engineers. They've right. sort of never thought about ever even being in a band, let alone like playing on the stage or 
so that that took a bit of cajoling but we um we set our ambitions quite high <laughs> <laughs> and the first show they ever did was shepherd's bush empire Wow. Yeah. And they'd never been on stage. They'd never been on stage. Henry was so petrified he wouldn't look up from the keyboard at any point. But yeah, it was amazing. I think we all sat down, we took bets with Max Usada and and Sam and Henry and I about what we thought the record might sell. I think the highest was like 25,000 copies and it went on to sell a million records. Wow. Yeah, that was really... Who bet the high? What was your bet on it? God, you know, I can't remember. I think I said 20. I think Max obviously said 25, and the boys probably said like 4,000 or something. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was really, it was such an incredible journey. And, and for me, that show, I think I was in tears, like the whole, the whole gig, watching it. We had strings, we had Sally was playing strings, and yeah. we had horns. And, what year um, was that then, that that show was? Oh, gosh, I'm thinking. So... Simple Things was 2001, so it must have been around then, around yeah, then. 2001. So that's a long time. Yeah. So before that, so there's this kind of, when you get to Rack and you've set up and you go in on your first day and you've done this midnight flight Yeah. and it's really exciting, how do you then start to work out things like contracts and how much money to ask for? Did you know that all from before? Well, I kind of learned a bit about it, yeah, obviously from... Uh, working with Marcus and then um, you know doing the deals uh, at Legion, well just helping out on on getting the kind of deal memos done. Mm. I had a vague understanding of kind of what a producer deal might look like, but yeah, I mean I really was stabbing in the dark in terms of working out how much money to ask for. Yeah. But um, I had a few people that I could ring up and. In fact, I used to ring Marcus all the time at Ignition go, what do you think I should do about this? And how do I deal with that? And, yeah, and I think it's just that thing where you just say to people, look, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to go and find out. We'll find out, yeah. And, and people, I think, are afraid to do that quite a lot of the time, especially now, they, and they kind of think, oh, I, if, I, if I say I don't know, yeah. it looks like I haven't a clue I, yeah, what I'm doing, and exactly. therefore I've lost this control of this situation. Yeah. I mean, I've always stuck by that, and I'm learning things every day, even mm. now. You just never, ever come to the end of, you know, you're never going to know everything. And yeah. there's always something changing. You know, that's the thing with this digital world and, you know, I've got, I mean, social media. There's just so much to learn, like, constantly. Everything's changing. Yeah. And I've never said to my, I've always said to my clients, you know, if I don't know something, just leave it with me. I'll, I'll go and find out. Sure. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um. Do you miss the days those kind of crazy early days where essentially I suppose the biggest difference was that the music industry had so much money that you know trips and you, yeah. you could kind of do any idea you had you could had a good chance of make it happen converting yeah. on, but yeah and even a, like marketing ideas you know you could have these really grandiose plans of what you're going to do and you know back in the day with Zero Seven we had like loads of sponsors and Jaguar cars sponsored them to go to America and you know, it was just a whole different world, really. Mm. Yeah. Do you miss that? I guess, yeah. And also yeah. just selling records. You know, you'd, you'd know that you'd sell, like, 40,000 records on week one, you know. And, like, now you're lucky to sell half of that in the whole campaign. You yeah. Know, you're doing well. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was a very different sort of world. Yeah. I just remember all the really lavish sort of record company parties at Christmas and stuff that were just, like you know, fountains of vodka and <laughs> kind of ice sculptures made out of tequila or something. I, I don't know. It was just always really like, whoa, yeah. who's going to kind of outdo, you know, the next label. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of, I don't think any of that exists no, anymore. No, unfortunately. <laughs> so when did you start employing people at Solar? How, how? Um, so I had just Jackie, but then sadly she, uh, yeah, she left and um, I, quite quickly um, took I always had a few people doing work experience and uh, this guy Gunter Walker came along to do work experience and I sort of quickly took him on he was great and he still works with me now so he's been here 20 years now so uh, yeah and he's been you know it's been so amazing having him along the way because we you know all our all ideas and decisions we we kind of do together and yeah I always get his opinion on everything so um, and that's uh, quite quickly sort of grew from having you know, one person and two people. We had this really funny thing where we had more and more phone lines kept get putting in, but we hadn't got a phone system. So we'd just get more phones on our desks, but the phone would ring, but you didn't know which one it was. So we had like the red phone, the green phone, the blue phone. <laughs> and whoever picked it up had to say, okay, we've got, we've got Jimmy, he's on the blue phone. And then as that person picked it up, you slammed it down. It was just hilarious. And then I got to the point where I think there was like five of us squashed into this tiny, tiny room. Right. And I was like, okay, it's time to, to move out, so sadly. It, and um, was it making money straight away as a company? I mean, I think we used to just break even pretty much for probably quite a few years. It was yeah. just sort of breaking even until sort of Zero Seven started was it really Zero making Seven some was money. The, yeah, they were oh. like the biggest client for, for quite some time. And obviously mm. Nigel as well did yeah. really brilliantly from Radiohead. And we also quite, we took on um, this amazing young producer, uh, mixer called Dan Greg Margaret, who's actually Nigel, Nigel's cousin. Right. So he used to help Nigel out on uh, lots of projects, like, you know, from Paul McCartney to Radiohead back right. in the day. And he'd sit at the back and read all the manuals. And I knew I had a feeling that he was going to be super talented. And, sure. and now he, yeah, he's amazing sort of mixer producer that... Yeah. We've looked after um, and he's you know doing just did the Liam Gallagher record and uh, yeah he's doing incredibly well is there much difference between managing 
artists and producers and remixers because you've got both on your books yeah it is actually very very different is it yeah it's incredibly different is it is that um, down to ego or um fear? not really i think it's just a very different sort of tasks that need to be done so with producers and mixers it's very much sort of sorting logistics you know obviously you have to do a deal you have to try and find the work for them i mean once they get really good which we're luckily our, yeah. our clients all seem to have lots of work coming to them and we don't have to like run, run around trying to find work and you know, we seem to be getting offered work all the time they can't actually fit it all in mm. but um it's more being super organized and all organizing all the logistics about where which studio when the dates how you're going to schedule it all it's all a lot of it's about scheduling and how you're going to fit everything in and with mixers, you're, ne- you're always waiting for the part. So you're waiting for a band or an artist to actually finish the recording before they can pass it on to you to mix. And they always book, try and book you up and say, you know, right, I need Dan to do, you know, three days next week. And we're like, well, have you actually got the parts? You know, have you finished recording? Yeah, yeah, we'll get them to you on the morning. It's like, well, you know, mm. and nine times out of ten, they're not ready. The band's decided to change their mind. So it's, it's a lot of juggling dates. And it's just organising all the deals. Sure. It's quite sort of straightforward and it's quite satisfying because it's like everything's got a start and a finish. You deliver all the parts, you sign the contract, you get paid. Yeah. And it's nice and straightforward. And I've always sort of found as long as you've got a few of those going on, you know, really good clients, that's a sort of nice steady income that can keep everything running. Mm. While you've got the artists who are so unpredictable, you know, their income goes up, it goes down. You might have a dry patch where there's... You know, they haven't written a new record, so there's nothing going on, and it's very sort of much more unpredictable the money, like when it's going to come in, because mm. you're basing it all on pub- publishing and, and record deals, and you only get paid in advance when you actually make a whole album and put some music out, and yeah. that's down to creativity. Yeah. So, obviously, managing an artist, it's everything from organizing world tours to helping sort out, you know, who's the artwork, the videos. Uh, the van broke down in the middle of you know the night or whatever or how are we going to get them from here to here you know when you've got a whole band you've got to bring like five people and organize you know, so many different things yeah it's a lot more complicated and complex but it's actually very rewarding because it's it's very creative and you can kind of help influence you know where they're going to play how they're going to build up a fan base marketing ideas what the whole thing's going to look like and uh, yes it's a very it's a very different job actually yeah yeah there was a documentary on bbc4 recently about managers that i watched and um all the managers that were on there talking they all seemed to come down on this one thing at the end of the program when they said the thing about being a manager is you're never appreciated by the artist because if you have a good idea they take it as their idea. Yeah. If you have a bad idea, then it's your fault. If something yeah. goes wrong, then it's your fault. Is that, tr- is it, that true? I is think it kind of is to a certain extent, yeah. Though I do, you know, I, I hopefully they might see some of the things you do. I've, I've actually recently, I've been managing a bank or flight signed to Island Records for the last five years, but we've actually sort of parted ways recently and I just went out for dinner with them last week, actually. And they've been having to sort of sort all their own shows out and everything over the summer. Oh, like, right. all, and it was quite funny because I, I really don't think they had any idea of what we had been doing until they had to do it themselves. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the, uh, one of the guys from the band, the drummers, it was his job to sort of do all the uh, tour advancing and the logistics. And he was like, 
oh my god I had like no idea so we just we had to go to Amsterdam and it took me like three days to sort of work out the logistics of like ferries and you know vans and tolls and petrol and yeah I mean there's so much goes into organizing tours that I really don't think many artists think have not. any idea yeah and even just negotiating deals actually for producers and mixers there's you know a lot of back and forth and it's sometimes really delicate and a lot goes into it behind yeah. the scenes and then it's also a lot of administration and that's the boring part but it has to get done because everything has to get registered so ppl prs sound exchange uh, you know there's a million different sort of collection societies you've got to track all the money and uh, is everyone getting paid and how do you get paid you've got to navigate like universal's uniport system which is a law unto itself yeah um, so yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot more to it, I think, than just hey, let's all go on tour kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's getting harder because there's all of these sync deals on a computer game. There's all these extra yeah. revenue streams that people are still trying to work out that are quite in the early stages, aren't they? I guess of how yeah. you make money as a musician these days. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, it really is, um, and it's difficult. I think you know, thank goodness for live because for a band starting out. It's really difficult these days so, I think, yeah, to actually yeah. make make it financially viable. Because yeah. you know, if you're only getting support shows and you're getting paid 150 quid, or you know, until you can make at least five or six hundred pound a show, you you are not going to make any money, and you're going to lose money because you've got to you know you might have someone doing your front of house sound, you've got to get a van, you've got to get the gear there, petrol. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, you know, you've got to pay the support band if you're doing your own show. Yeah. Um, it's you know it's, it takes a long time yeah, to, to actually yeah. start breaking even. What is it you think makes a good manager? Um, I'd say a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a huge amount of patience and see I've always sort of had the theory that like being like really kind of forceful is not necessarily going to get you what you want. I was going to say the exact same yeah. thing <laughs> um, <laughs> because you seem. I know we've only just met, but you're you almost seem too nice to be a manager, yeah. like a successful manager, because there is this idea that managers are tough and quite you know aggressive. Yeah, is that, I mean, how, you, sure, is that how you manage? Or I'm sure you... a lot of managers are successful from being like that, but that's so not me, and it's never been me, and none of the clients that we look after really wanted a manager like that. Mm. And so I always feel like I'm more an extension of the people I manage. And so I go about doing things in the way that they would like themselves. So if I'm, I don't know, negotiating a deal for Nigel, I will do it in a firm but friendly way. Right, and yeah. I always maintain, all, you know, relationships. I don't, I don't want to fall out with anyone. So, sure, yeah. you know, you can, I think if you're just firm and efficient and, you know, you're on top of things, then you're respected for that. And most of the people we manage, they don't really want a heavy-duty kind of manager that's going to throw the weight around and slam the fist on the table. And um, if they do, then they would quickly find out they're in the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> because I just think it's uh, it's all about relationships. And um, you know, having done this for twenty-eight years, you you know, you kind of know everybody, and and everyone knows that we get the job done, and we'll get back to them, and we'll deal with things efficiently. Mm. Yeah. And for me, that's more important than you know, trying to eke out every last penny out of someone, you know. For me, it's not about the money, actually. It's more about the art and the music and everyone being able to do what they want, what they enjoy for, for a career yeah. and sustain it and not for it all to be, like, 
okay, we had the top five hit, but now the whole thing's over, you know. And I'm lucky enough to have, you know, most of my clients have been with me way over 10 years, you know, 15, 20 years, some of them. So um, they've managed to keep a career going all that time. And I think that's quite difficult these days. And it stands for a lot, I think, to, to, to actually be on the even keel and calmly be sort of getting on with things and building on your success that way. At any point along the way, since starting solo, did it ever look like it was going to end or it wasn't going to work? Um, I guess there were probably a few wobbly years where, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when there was a bit of a recession and a crash and you can kind of get swept along with a sort of doom and gloom, you know, the CDs out and, did, you know, it was kind of before streaming really happened and there was a really sort of bad feeling in the whole mm. industry that everything was doom and gloom and it's all going to crash and we're all going to, you know, become bankrupt. Yeah. Um, and I kind of got, found myself being a little bit swept along with that and started sort of, you know, getting a bit anxious about, you know, how many staff I took on and what decisions I was making. And then I kind of realised, I was like, you know what? Like, if you stay positive, things are actually change for you and I have already had amazing clients um, David Holmes was making loads of incredible films and yeah Jimmy was still making music and Nigel Dan everyone you know had in such a great position that actually you realize that you can get through these times and not to be sucked into the sort of the industry yeah uh, feeling when actually you're like well actually it just takes one thing to happen and everything changes yeah. And that's what's amazing about music, I think, because you just don't know like what's going to be a hit and what's going to be a success. And, and that's like such an interesting sort of, sort of drive, I think, of just like nobody knows what, what is around the corner. Yeah. And you could be one minute earning, you know, 10 grand a year and the next um, half a million, you know. Yeah. You, you have no idea what, what, what could happen. Do you ever wish that, I'm guessing the answer to this is a big fat no, but do you ever think that you should have done a different part of music no <laughs> no is there, a, is there another part that because you obviously know the industry so well now yeah is there another part that you think oh that's quite a fun area or that's do you do think you know no because i don't i mean management is so all-encompassing you do so many different things and you never know from one week to the next what you're going to be doing you know like kieran fortet you know once he's like can you find some like lighting up hula hoops, you know, or one minute you're doing something and then the next something else. And you, you know, you're really close with, with the artists and the clients. And it's, mm. I don't think there's anything as rewarding as management because, you know, in A&R, it's such a massive pressure, you know, you've got to find the next big thing and are you going to keep your job? And um, I would hate to do that. I just would hate to be under that pressure. And live, I think, is great, but then it's just a lot of the same thing. So if you were just always doing promoting or yeah. booking tours, you know, okay, you can book some incredible tours. And I love that. I do love that part of management, but I just love the fact that management is, you know, there's, there's, never, there's a never-ending sort of list of things that I do on a daily basis that are yeah. different to the week before. Yeah. Um, and that's what I love about it, I think. Yeah. I think I want to become a manager now. You should. <laughs> Music Made Me Do It is produced by Dream Team and Loud and Quiet and edited by Emma Snook. For more information, please visit loudandquiet.com and subscribe on your favourite podcast app to receive all future episodes.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.